Okay, well, if you're not there yet, if you want to open your Bibles to Revelation 21, and like I said, here's a real quick review, and then I want to dive in so that we can get through uh, a lot of this today. Um, So if you weren't here, or if you just forgot what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, actually three weeks ago, we talked about uh, the new heaven and the new earth, uh, and we we talked about the the new creation that God gives to us. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's uh, a refreshed or renewed or transformed earth and heaven uh, without any effects of sin, remembrance of sin. Uh, It's very Eden-esque, if you want to say it that way. Um, And we talked about the new city, which we're going to talk about today, the new city, the new Jerusalem that descends from God out of heaven and sits on the new earth. Uh, And it's the city of Christ, the city of the king, where all the nations will come uh, to worship him. And again, we'll talk more about that today. We talked about the new communion that we have with God um, when uh, the new during uh, in the eternal kingdom or the, the new heavens and the new earth and the new city. We are forever wed together with God. There is a there is um, we will always be in His presence. We will know Him as He knows us. There will be no more sin. There will be no more separation. Uh, there will be no more veil between us. There's no hindrance. It's just uh, those who belong to Him and Him forever uh, will be in His presence. We talked about the new conditions uh, in the, the the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. That there is no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more effects of sin at all. The curse is completely gone. All things have been made new. Christ is reigning as king forever. God is reigning forever. We are with him forever. Uh, and it is complete opposite of what it's like now. In fact, we talked about that. The way that um, John describes it, or the way the Lord revealed it to him, is basically all in the negatives, because it's just nothing like this. It's everything is made new, and it's, it's beyond our comprehension. And then finally, the new citizens, we talked about that, that all of those who thirst and hunger for God, all of those um, who have overcome uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ, all of those who are children of God will be there, and that we will all be there together with him, from Adam all the way to the very last saint that lives on this earth during the tribulation, uh, all of Israel, everyone pre-Israel, all the church, all the tribulation saints, all the people of God, brought together, and we will inherit this earth. We will be heirs together with Christ of all things, and we will be in his kingdom and part of his city, which we'll talk about today. Uh, and then it came with one final warning um, that those, uh, those who do not believe in Christ, all sinners, there will be no sinner uh, in the eternal kingdom, no unbelieving person, uh, no idolater, no liar. They will all be in the lake of fire. There is no more sin at this point. And that leads us to what we talked about last week. So after that, it says that, uh, that an angel took John up on a high mountain uh, in verse 9. And it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In verse 10 of chapter 21, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And so that's what we talked about last week, this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Um, And just a couple of things, just like I said, to get our minds back in the game as we talk about this city, because that's what we're talking about. Uh, Everything today is just about the the radiance and the glory of the city, the description that God gives us through John of this new city, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And then we get a little glimpse inside, and that's about it. That's it. Um, Because that's all we need to know, the side of heaven. We need to know that this is the reward. This is the inheritance. This is how all things will end. Um, but then our focus must be on the present. 
And I think we've said that many times in here. As we study heaven, as we study the new creation, as we study the new Jerusalem, for those who believe in Jesus Christ and are born of God, these are the things that we long for. These are the things that remind us to run faithfully while we're here on this earth. These are the things that that remind us to be patient, like Mark was saying, as we go through trials and suffering and persecution and even death and sickness and everything else in this life. These are the things that the Lord has promised for all of his children. This is the inheritance of Christ. This is what we are fellow heirs together with Christ. But all of this is not of anything that, that it's not because of our worth or because of who we are. It's because of who he is um, and because of what he has done for us, that he's washed us clean with his blood and that he has uh, brought us into his kingdom. But this is the kingdom. This is what we long for. So just a couple of quotes that I thought were really good to, again, remind you of what we were talking about last week. We were talking, Henry Moore says the new Jerusalem, when we talk about this city, is composed of such beautiful materials, such unique construction, such amazing dimensions, as to be almost beyond human comprehension. I mean, you're going to read the words, but like, as you read it, you're just like, I can't even imagine something like that, but it, because it's beyond anything that we could understand in this present time and anything that we've ever seen built uh, by, by mankind. Uh, It says it would be impossible to believe except that its builder and maker is God, and he has carefully had it recorded in his word. And so, and and this gets to an important point here. Uh, The city is so huge, its wall so majestic, its great gates so magnificent, uh, it has to transcend all imagination. And God must even have a mighty angel carefully measure and delineate it uh, for John's benefit and for ours, not ours. (laughs) I, I should have changed that from last time. But, uh, but the point being is uh, there, it's, it is actually measured out, and there are specific uh, details about the city. And I think the point is what he's going to say here. Even so, with all its detailed measurements and description, most commentators still refuse to believe that the account means what it says, seeking by many and varied stratagems of interpretation to make it all an allegory or parable of some kind. All such devices flounder, of course, upon these very details of measurement and description. That's something we've talked about throughout Revelation. Uh, there's many things in Revelation that we have not seen. Many things in Revelation, uh, conditions during the, the millennial kingdom, uh, in the Old and New Testament, that, peop- that we don't understand because we've never existed in the millennial kingdom. And because of that, then we start going, well, that just represents this. Or it's an allegory or a story for this. And we turn it into either something spiritual that is just kind of imaginary, um, or we turn it into something that we try to pin down by either current events or something historical. What we have to do is just let the Word of God read the way, we, the way it reads. And the things that we haven't seen just haven't been seen. It doesn't mean they won't happen, and it doesn't mean that you have to pull it back into something that you can comprehend. You just go, that's going to be awesome. The millennial kingdom of Christ will be awesome, and it is going to be different than anything we've seen. The eternal kingdom makes the millennial kingdom look just like a a little shadow of the glory that will happen during this time. So just read it like you read all the rest of Scripture. When you read prophecies, and we talked about this, prophecies that have not happened will happen in the same way that prophecies that have already happened have happened. If that doesn't make sense, (laughs) basically go go read Old Testament prophecies that have already uh, taken place in history, and they happen exactly like God said it. You know, they happened, I mean, if, he, if it's a name place, it happens to that name.
place. If it's a king that's named, it happens to that king. Uh, if it's a time frame, it happens in that time frame. And so then just apply that to future things. Because a lot of times we take past prophecies and we're like, they happen just like that. And we take future prophecies and we just kind of blow the door open and change our hermeneutical method. And we go, man, that could mean anything. And it can't. It means one thing. And the, the, the future is just as set uh, and, and permanent as the past. It's just that we're not God and we don't see it that way. We see it in time. But God, God knows all things. And he is disclosing to his children some of the things that have not happened. And they'll happen exactly like he says it. That doesn't mean that he doesn't use poetry, and, and you read, but you read poetry just like you would read poetry. It doesn't mean that he doesn't use allegory or use um, uh, visions of things that represent things. But, but again, even those things, when, when you have like uh, the beast that represents the false prophet or the Antichrist, those representations are defined in Scripture. So the beast is given to us as a picture, like a beast that comes out of the sea or a beast that comes out of the earth. But then those are defined both in the, the context right there in Revelation 13 or in past contexts like in Daniel or Zechariah that show you that this is talking about a person. Does that make sense? A man. So you don't have to come up with your own ideas of what this might mean or what this could mean. You just read it in the context of Scripture as a whole. And, and Scripture defines Scripture. And the prophecies will happen exactly like he says it. And so when we get to the eternal kingdom, it is beyond comprehension. It is impossible by our standard of understanding to see, to see a city like with these dimensions and with this kind of material because the materials don't even exist in this present age. And the dimensions are impossible even sitting on this current earth. And you can either look at that and go, well, that's impossible, so it must mean, and then come up with your own imaginary interpretation, or you say, that's impossible, but he'll make it possible. It's just existing on a planet that's unlike our planet, and and in a time that's unlike our time. And it's built by God himself. We've never had anything on this earth, other than the earth itself, that was built by his own hands. You know what I mean? And so it makes Mount Everest look like, like minuscule in comparison to this amazing city. Um, so all that being said, we read this last week. Um, well, I just read that to you. Uh, John's taken up on the mountain. He sees the, the, the city descending. Uh, we, and we talked about this. We talked about the glory of the New Jerusalem. Uh, this city is described like this. It says, Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Again, we don't have any crystal clear jasper that we know of, either historically or currently. Um, and so people say, well, maybe he's talking about a diamond or something like that. Whatever it is, it's, it, he describes it as jasper and it's crystal clear. Uh, and so whether that's a new kind of jasper that God makes or whether it is just diamond, we'll talk more about that in a second. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And uh, at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, uh, we're not going to go through all of this again, uh, because we, we talked about this last time. Uh, but what we see here is is the glory of God, the brilliance, the fulgence, the, the, the uh, radiance of God uh, uh, radiating from this city. Uh, it's made of crystal clear jasper. Um, and we'll talk about it in a second. It, it also it says that uh, it, it's like made of, of pure transparent gold. But it's just a pure, transparent 
radiant city descending from heaven. Uh, And John's trying to describe that with the language that he has at hand in a way that we can understand it. Uh, It has 12 gates. um, The the gates are named by the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. It has 12 foundation stones. And the 12 foundation stones have the 12 names of the, um, the, uh, the apostles of Christ. And so we talked about that. That this is, uh, this is all of the people of God, uh, but you have still a distinction between Israel and the church. Not that they're separate or anything like that. They're all one. We're one together with Christ. But it just shows you still that Israel is named by these tribes and the church as the, the apostles. And it just shows you that God has a purpose and a reason for all of those things. The church is not the new Israel and Israel is not the church. They're two separate things. And at the same time, we're one together in Christ. And that's just the way that the Lord has done it. And we talked about uh, the gates. This is very similar to the description of, uh, of the millennial kingdom uh, in Ezekiel 48. Uh, but the, the measurements are drastically different. But in the same way, the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 48 uh, is, is, is square like this. It has 12 gates. Um, and uh, there's, there's very similar things. Uh, and each of the gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. But like I said, the difference between the millennial Jerusalem that we have in Ezekiel 48 is it's about 51 square miles. If me- and it's measured out in Ezekiel. Uh, and here, the heavenly Jerusalem is 1,500 miles square and high, which is drastically different than the millennial, uh, the millennial temple or the millennial city. Um, and so it just shows you that, like, like I said, many things in the Bible are foreshadowing of things to come or examples of things to come. Even the Holy of Holies is a perfect square with dimensions where the glory of God resides both in the tabernacle and the temple. And then you have that in the, the millennial kingdom. And now you have a square city that's very similar to the Holy of Holies and things like that for the eternal kingdom. But they're all distinct and different. And then we talked about the 12 foundation stones uh, named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And we'll talk about that more in a second. And we left off last week here with the measurements of the New Jerusalem. We started into this and we're going to pick it up from here this week. And then I think we'll have time to, to finish this today. So, so the measurements of the New Jerusalem. Like I said, I wanted to get here last week. I kind of rushed into it just so we could say, look at this, the crazy dimensions of the city. And I think that would be a good thing to revisit and then take off from there into the rest of the description of the city. So it says, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city. All right? So again, this is something that we see uh, happening in other places. Uh, in Ezekiel 40, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the millennial uh, city is measured uh, in Revelation 11 during the tribulation. Uh, the, the tribulation temple is measured uh, in both times. An angel or a person has a measuring rod that measures it out, which again shows you that the Lord wants us to pay attention to these details and description. It's not just some spiritual thing. Uh, it, it has actual physical dimensions, and they're measured out. It says, so he's going to measure the city, its gates, its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles was the measurement of the city. Its length and width and height are equal. So 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. And he measured its wall 72 yards uh, thick according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. So we we left off there last week. And like I said, just to uh, kind of, actually, I guess we covered a lot of this, but to fast forward or to get our mind into it and to kind of, I'm going to move quick through the measurements. But in Ezekiel 40, you got the millennial temple that is measured out. 
um, again, there you have a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. This most likely was Christ measuring this out uh, for Ezekiel. And the millennial temple, uh, he took a rod in his hand and he measured it. Uh, the same thing happens in Revelation 11 with John. Uh, it says, then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. Uh, and he measures the temple of God that is there during the millennial reign of Christ. Or I'm sorry, during the tribulation. Uh, during the tribulation, uh, the temple is measured. Um, and so uh, he measures this temple, or this angel measures the temple. And it's 1,500 miles square, and the wall is 72 yards thick. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, it says it's 12,000 stadion, and it's 144 cubits. And so that's the, the English measurement equivalent, or close to equivalent to those things. And again, uh, stadion is just a, um, a measurement that's basically an, about an eighth of a mile. And it's a measurement that's been used in many different cultures. Uh, Babylonian, Phoenician, uh, and Greek, and uh, Romans all use uh, stadiums to measure things. Um, and again, if you think about this, when you talk about 1,500 miles wide, uh, long, and tall, uh, there's a few different people who have made kind of like uh, just uh, pictures of, of what this would look like. So if you take that measurement and you set the new Jerusalem on the United States, it would cover about that area. Um, so that's just kind of good to see. It's like that, and that's the city. That's not the new earth. That's the city of, of God. That's the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven and sits on earth. You know, so again, that's not like a land, it's the city, this one city that, that is that large. It's 1,500 miles high, so again, just an artist rendition, but I mean, it would sit like that on the planet. Again, you look at that and you're like, that's impossible, let's make this into some sort of, what could that mean? It means that. There's going to be a city that, that sits on earth, it, it, that, that looks that is a cube shape. And again, this is beyond our comprehension for sure. And its glory is magnificent. But the glory that radiates out of the city uh, illumines the universe. And it makes the sun, the, 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 we don't need the light of the sun or anything like that anymore. The, the glory of Christ and the glory of God light up the universe. This is another thing that I thought was helpful to kind of, again, just show you how beyond comprehension the city is. But it, it extends up into the exosphere. The exosphere is where spaceships and things like that are. I mean, so the troposphere is where all of our current atmosphere is, where airplanes go. The, uh, I think we talked about Mount Everest is like, uh, what was it, five or seven miles? I can't remember. But it's, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's like five miles tall or seven miles tall. I can't remember the exact measurement. Uh, and then, so, that it, so it's, it's everything that we know is down in the troposphere. And it, it extends above all of that up into basically outer space. I mean, that's how tall the city will be. And again, we'll have new bodies that are able to do things that these bodies can't do. So I imagine all 1,500 miles of the, the entire city is going to be usable space for the people of God for all of eternity uh, and, and is uh, part of the, the glory of God. And again, just another uh, artist drawing of all this stuff. But all that being said... Uh, and it says that the human measurements here are the same as the angelic me- measurements. Um, and uh, I, I gave you uh, a Robert Thomas quote on that. Uh, but basically, and this is the, the layman's rendition of what that means. Uh, he, he says this expression means that an angel did the measuring but followed human standards. It's not saying that, that, that the angels measure everything by feet and inches and stuff. He's saying that an angel did the measuring, but he communicated it to us in a way that you can comprehend it. 
Um, it says these are human measurements, figures determined by standards common among men, even though a non-human did the measuring. John MacArthur says it this way, a yard is a yard, and a foot is a foot, and a mile is a mile, whether humans for, or for angels. It's just saying, but he's showing that this is a, we interpret this literally, this is going to be a city with those dimensions. And, and Michael Vlock, uh, in his, um, what's it called, He Will Reign Forever, the Kingdom of God book, it says God seems to warn us against spiritualizing this passage because everyone does. There's very few people that read Revelation 21 and 22 and go, that's going to happen just like that. But we do. And I'm, I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. Don't toss your hermeneutic that you kept all through the Bible at the very end and be like, eh. You know, you just, just read it and let it read. But he says, it seems that God's warning us against spiritualizing this passage, emphasizing that this city is measured according to human measurements. So he measures it out, and he says, what that angel just did is measuring it in terms that you can understand. It will be that size. And I know that's beyond anything we can imagine. It does look silly when you look at that. But it's not. It will be. That is the city of God that descends out of heaven. So, this next part is we have not done, and this is where we're going to pick up with new material today. And we're going to talk, the next part is about the beauty of the New Jerusalem. So its size is magnificent. The glory that, that radiates out of it is unbelievable. But then the beauty of this city is, is again, comprehensible, but it's, it's amazing to read. And, and really, again, when we read this, we just got to read it, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what the words mean but in the end, it's just going to be one more thing that's like, that's going to be amazing. Every one of these things are just like, I don't get it, but that's going to be awesome. The glory that radiates out of it. Man, that's, <laughs> I've never seen anything like that, but that's amazing. The measurement of it, I've never seen anything like that, but that's amazing. The beauty, the same thing. So look at what it says in verses 18 through 21. It says, the material of the wall was jasper. We talked about that, right? When it descended out of heaven, it was like crystal clear jasper. And he also says, and the city was pure gold. Like clear glass. Again, we don't know gold like that. We don't know jasper like that. But this jasper and this gold that, that, that he describes is just completely clear, transparent, and pure. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. Oh, you got to bear with me on some of these. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Most of those are really beautiful names for little girls. <laughs> I think these are really pretty names. <laughs> and the twelfth gate, uh, the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Again, think of what you know. And you can't comprehend this. I mean, the foundation, I think of it this way. The, you know, our, our foundation is dirt and rock and stuff like that, right? But the foundation of this city is that. It's all of these magnificent gemstones. And those are just, and, and, and uh, some of these gemstones, it's hard to actually uh, translate from the Greek to the English and go, that's exactly what stone that's talking about. Many of these stones are mentioned to be on the, um, uh, the ephod of the priest in the Old Testament, things like that. But some of these things, there's debate. What, is it jasper or is it diamond? Is it, is it uh, you know, um, one of them, uh, there's a, a lapis lazul, and, and they say, is it that or is it? So, but the point being is all of the most magnificent gems and the beauty of these gems, this is what the city is founded on. 
But start with the walls. When we talk about the beauty of the New Jerusalem, the first thing that John sees and the first thing that the Lord gives to us are the, the picture of these walls. And they're made of jasper and pure gold-like clear glass. And again, everything about this city is transparent. Everything about this city is pure. And, it's, it's, and, and someone was saying in one of the commentaries, oh, this is a neat thing. No matter what, how many rooms or how deep into, if there's houses and how far into a house you go, everything is crystal clear and the radiance of God uh, just, just goes through all things. There's not a, a single place that is ever going to be dark. There's no need, it says, for the light of the sun or the light of a lamp or anything like that again. The radiance of God just will, will blast through all of the city, but it's still, it still is all these amazing, beautiful um, colors, and, um, and, and uh, it's just all ablaze with the glory of God. Um, and so the, the radiant jasper, um, it, it's very similar to how uh, John described the Lord in Revelation 4.3. It talks about him being a jasper stone. So again, you just see the, the radiance, the glory, the majesty of God, and it's going through the city, coming out of the city. The city itself just radiates with his glory. It says the foundation stones of the wall. Again, first thing, John can see the foundation stones. So in some way, you know, it seems like that these, you can, they extend above the ground. You can see them. It's not like he's looking down into the earth. But these, the city is founded on these, um, the, the bedrock of these stones. Um, and these stones, again, the list of stones there, uh, there's, like I said, there's debate on what all the stones uh, mean. Actually, here it is. There's considerable uncertainty about the exact identity of most of these foundation stones, but perhaps even this is intentional. The purpose of John's description is surely to impress upon us the indescribable glories and beauties of the holy city. That's what I was saying earlier. Everything about this description is to impress upon us the unbelievable nature of this city, the city that Christ has been preparing for thousands of years, the city that God himself is the architect and builder of. Uh, it says, um, reflecting its heavenly light in, in the translucent white and rainbow hues of its mighty jasper wall, resting upon great and brilliant foundations containing every imaginable color and variety of the most beautiful materials that an omnipotent God can man- manufacture. I mean, that's it. That's how you read this. Don't just think, oh yeah, I know what a topaz looks like. It's going to be a big brick topaz. You're looking at this going, he is just describing the most majestic city imaginable, unimaginable, and and all of these majestic, beautiful stones that are all kinds of different colors. Uh, Again, I stole this from someone else who who made uh, these pictures and, and, and gave a description. And we're not going to get into all that, but I just want you to see the colors. You just got greens and purples and oranges and, and uh, just all these amazing stones. But it helps us to understand what these things look like. And then you just think, this is the, this is the common material under the walls, you know, of the city of God. And it just radiates with His glory and His majesty. But these are, these are in our time, some of the most... Uh, pretty and, and uh, beautiful gemstones that we have. And he's basically saying these are the foundations of the city. Um, and, uh, and, and it's just beautiful. It's beyond comprehension. And then he talks about the gates. And again, the gates. It says that there's 12 gates. We've already talked about that, named after the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, and the gates were made of 12 pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. And again, there's debate on, do these gates extend 1,500 miles tall? Maybe. And a single pearl? You know, I mean, it's like, that, that is a huge oyster, right? I mean, like, when, 
But, but the point being is it, these, these pearls don't come from an oyster. These pearls are manufactured by God himself. And the gate is made of one single pearl. And you're like, I can't imagine that. And that's exactly the point. And the gates are always there and they're always open and it always reflects the majesty of God. And for all eternity, as we come in and out of the gates to worship him, we will never stop marveling at him. It's, it's the builder. It's the one who made this city that is the most majestic and marvelous thing. This city was easy for him, but blows our minds. But again, so you got the 12 gates of the 12 pearls, and then the street is made of pure gold like transparent glass. So again, the streets of the city are transparent, translucent gold streets. And again, we don't know gold like that. There's no transparent gold in our day and age. Again, it talks about this, just the purity of it. It's the, the greatness of it. But this is, this is what the Lord paves his streets with. This is our Lord and our God. This is our home. This is our city. This is where we belong. This is why we long so much for heaven. And it's not even just to see this. It's to be together with him in this place. You know, this is just the, the walls. I mean, it's who's inside that makes this city so awesome. So this is a, a description of the beauty of Jer- the New Jerusalem. But this next part is even, even greater. The illumination of the New Jerusalem. The illumination of the New Jerusalem. I just tried to come up with another word because I just wanted to use glory again because I don't know how to, how to describe this. Uh, there's, so many, there's so many things that just talk about the glory, the radiance, the brilliance, the effulgence of God that is just beaming from the city. And here we go again. And look at this city. It says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The whole thing, it, it, he, he is the temple. We're, 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 we're united together with him. I'm getting ahead of myself. Look, keep, keep reading. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. It's Christ himself. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into the city, into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, there's just, it's the same thing we've said. All of these things are beyond comprehension. But it's good to look at some of this. First thing, there's no temple in this city, which again shows the distinction between this city and the millennial kingdom, which had a temple, and every other place which had a temple where God existed. And that there was still a place that he was, if you want to say this, constrained to or kept in that separated him from people from sinners. Because even during the millennial kingdom, there's still sinners on this earth. Even though all those who return together with him are in bodies that will never die, that we are perfectly sanctified and glorified together with him, there is still need for conversion during that time. There's still a rebellion at the very end of the millennium, but no more. All that's done away with. There is no need at all for for any temple. He is the temple. And we are forever with him. And we'll never leave his presence and never be away from him. But there's no temple in the... the, the, um, New Jerusalem, and it says, "For the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple." Um, and uh, this is what uh, in, in Revelation twenty one three we already read this, but it says, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men; He will dwell among them; they shall be His people. God Himself will be among them." We are now forever united with Him. We can see His face. We can we can see His glory. We're given 
bodies and eyes and, 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 and we are pure now to the point where we can, we can be in the presence of God without being consumed. We can be together with him forever and we're forever united with him. We are holy as he is holy and we are with him. Um, uh, MacArthur says in his commentary, life will be worship and worship will be life. There's no leaving the presence of God. We're always with him. Um, and uh, he will always be permanently, immediately together with us. And we talked about that when we talked about the communion that we have with him. So it says there's no temple in it, the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. There's no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. So the sun and the moon aren't necessary. Uh, it doesn't look like there is a sun or a moon. Uh, actually, in Isaiah 60, uh, 19 through 22, Isaiah talks about this time. Uh, and again, this is in Isaiah mixed in together with prophecies about the millennial kingdom and all that. He's just saying this is what the Lord will do in the future. But here we see it says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness will the moon give you uh, light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God uh, for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over, and then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. That's cool. So, I mean, we're still talking about land promises given to Abraham. This is talking about future promises of Israel. It is permanently theirs for eternity. And there will be a day when the sun and the moon, we don't even need them. Whether or not they exist, I don't know. Some people say they're completely gone. Some people are just saying they're up there, but the glory of God is so bright that the sun is just, you just, maybe you can see its outline or maybe you can't even see it anymore. You know how when we have light all around us, it's hard to see the stars, right? And when the glory of Christ is, is radiating out of the city, the sun is gone. So whether it ceases to exist completely and is done away with the new heavens and the new earth, or whether it, the glory of the new Jerusalem is just so bright that the sun is un, unperceivable, either way, it's gone. Does that make sense? And Christ will be the light of the world. Uh, and it says that. that, that, the, the, that um, actually, go back to the, this thing. It says, it's, lamb, it's lamp is the lamb. I love that. Because even when Christ showed up, he said, I am the light of the world. And now he literally is the light of the world. Christ himself is the, the glory that illumines this city. Uh, Robert Thomas says in his commentary, God's presence pervades the city and emits constant light in abundance. The Shekinah glory of God provided necessary illumination for the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. And his immediate presence will do the same for the whole city that will descend from heaven. Its lamp is Jesus Christ. Again, I, I went back in John and looked at the places where Jesus says this. Jesus spoke to them and says, I am the light of the world. Those, uh, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Talking about currently in this present time. Those who follow Christ, believe in Christ, will be illumined by Christ, will be born again, will be made new, will be able to understand, will be uh, 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 saved from sin and no longer part of sin. And, and he is our light. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And there will come a day where he will physically be the light of the world. And that is a, an amazing thing. Uh, and then in 1 Timothy 6, again, it says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. But one day we will be able to see and we will see when we have new bodies and we have new eyes and we have been glorified and we have been made holy and we will dwell in the light of Christ with the light of Christ uh, forever. Now that's just, again, one of the uh, just amazing promises 
given to his children and those who overcome and those who are called by his name. So now he emits the light for which mankind can see currently, um, but there will come a day when his majestic, radiant, effulgent glory will light up the universe and we will be able to be in his presence. We'll see that in a second. The next thing he talks about is that he is uh, the light of the nations. It says, um, again, reading it real quick, it says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. So there's some fascinating stuff here. And again, we can only say what it says here. But the things that we know here is, first thing, nations are important to God. And there's nations... Even though this is the city of Christ and the city of the king and where we have a home and a dwelling, there are still nations and kings and these nations are on this new earth uh, and they exist in, in, this, in this created order. I mean, that's just neat. I, I don't know what else to say other than that. I mean, we have nations here and we'll have nations there, but there will be no more fighting between the nations and no more kings trying to receive glory for themselves, no more bringing honor to themselves. All honor and all glory from all nations and all kings will be given to Christ. And the kings and the nations will come to glorify him here. But there's still kings and nations. And that's just part of uh, the current uh, or the future order of the uh, eternal kingdom. Uh, and it's mentioned actually three times. Uh, in Revelation 21, 22, and Isaiah 60, again, talks about this time period it says in Revelation 21, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory. So this is what we're talking about here in Revelation 22 two, The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. So three times mentioned in the eternal kingdom after sin is done away with, there, there are nations. And then the, the, what we just talked about in Isaiah 60, it says the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So again, whatever this means, I, I, I can't get far beyond what it says here except to say that there will be nations on the new earth. There will be nations for eternity. And, and it's going to be so different than what we can imagine here. Um, but there are nations besides uh, the, the new Jerusalem. Um, and the city, the new Jerusalem, will supply light for all who live on the earth. Um, again, we talked about there's no sea, which probably means there's just no separation between the nations. They're all together on one land, and they come, and they worship in the new Jerusalem, and they, they worship in their uh, nations. Um, so there's no leaving the presence of God, um, but there are cities. Um, so there's a lot of different theories, a lot of, I mean, if you read commentaries on this, people have all kinds of thoughts. But again, I just think you can only go so far with your thoughts before you just turn into imaginary kind of ideas, which are not bad. It's not bad to sit down and go, what is that going to be like? And just think about it. But in the end, we can only speculate with minds that understand nothing like this. The way we understand nations right now is very different. The way we understand lands right now and kings right now is very different. In fact, what we understand right now is the God of this world, Satan, uses these nations and uses these kings usually to, to, to do his bidding and his work. Very, there's only been one nation that God has set apart, and even that nation sinned against him and, 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 and forsook him, betrayed him. So it's just beyond our comprehension. But it says the kings of the earth will bring their glory um, they'll bring their glory into the kingdom to worship the king. Its gates will never be closed. And, and it says, and only the holy will enter the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean, it says. So no one with any sinfulness, any defilement, any contamination, corruption, or pollution. No one who practices, it says, any abomination. There's no, no one there uh, that is a sinner. All those who are part of this new earth, these new nations, and this new Jerusalem 
all are made perfect and holy by the blood of Christ. Uh, and it says, and there's no, there's no liars, no falsehood, no deceit, no lies, no hypocrites. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew 23. He said, what are you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering uh, to go in. In other words, because of their false teaching, they're keeping people from the very things that we're talking about here. The hypocrites will not enter the kingdom, and those who follow the hypocrites and their hypocrisy will never enter the kingdom. There are no liars, there are no deceivers. In Matthew 24, he says, the master of that slave will come on a day that he doesn't know and expect him at an, uh, at, he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The ultimate end of all liars, deceivers, uh, and, and hypocrites is the eternal lake of fire. They will never be a part of this kingdom. There will be former liars and former hypocrites who were broken and washed clean by the blood of Christ, which is everybody in this room, if you believe in Christ. But there will be no practicing hypocrisy, and there will be no more potential for sin for all eternity. All those things are done. And he says there will never be anyone, any sinner that enters into this kingdom. Uh, And praise the Lord that we can be made holy by the blood of Christ, and we can be a part of this. The final thing uh, is... In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it's almost like he opens the gate or we walk through the gate and he gives us a little glimpse inside. And that's it. Five verses and we're done. Five verses and that's, that's all we know of the new Jerusalem, the eternal kingdom, the city of God. But let's read those and look at a little bit of, of the life in the new Jerusalem. And then the rest of it, you just got to wait until after death. And you just got to wait until he does this. But it says in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Again, clear as crystal. Everything is perfectly clear, perfectly translucent. Coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb, and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his, bond, uh, and his bond servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will uh, no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is it. This is, this is the, the end of the revelation that God gives to John. And this is the end of the description of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the, the eternal kingdom of God. And uh, again, I, I, Henry Morris in his commentary, I just like the way he says things. He says, thus far John has described only the external beauties of the holy city with merely a glimpse of the golden streets inside its walls. Now we enter into the city itself, acquiring at least an introductory insight into the splendors that have been prepared for our enjoyment there. So again, this is just, like I said, a little glimpse of home, a little glimpse of of the inheritance we have in Christ, a little glimpse of the reward and the glory and the, the blessings that God has prepared for us and promised us if we are truly his. And then it's like, and then the, and then the book closes. And then it's just, now we got to go back to what Mark said. Be patient. <laughs> Be patient. So life in the city, the first thing is the river of life. Let me put this back up there. You have the, the river of life. 
Uh, it's very similar to the river described in Ezekiel 47 that comes out of the throne of God in the millennial temple and heals the earth, but it's completely different. It's not the same river, uh, but it's, it's similar. Like I said, I think the millennial kingdom and temple are just a foreshadowing of the eternal that blows it out of the water. Um, but uh, both flow from the throne of God. Both have trees that provide leaves for healing, but there's many differences. If you look in Ezekiel 47, when it describes the river, it says, Behold, um, let's see, actually it starts here. Uh, Behold, the water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east. The house faced east. The water was flowing down under from the right side of the house, from the south the altar. Uh, When I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. He said to me, these waters go out towards the eastern region. They go down into Arabah, which is south of the Dead Sea. Then they go towards the sea. They're talking about the Dead Sea, being made to flow into the sea. The waters of the sea become fresh. It will become the every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. So this river that flows from the, the, the millennial temple will heal the earth that has been just destroyed by the wrath of God before that time. Uh, and, and, and it brings life. Things come back to life. Salty seas are made fresh. So it brings healing to the earth. Um, it says there'll be many fish. Uh, wherever the waters go, they become fresh. Everything where it goes will live. Uh, it will come that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Ingalim, in, uh, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Again, but the point being here is, I mean, you got you got seas. There's no sea on the new earth. You got you got uh, name places that may or may not exist on the new earth, but it's a new earth. This is describing something very different. A lot of times people take this river in Revelation 22 and say, see, it's talking about this, or vice versa. We're just Both are rivers of life, if you want to say it that way, but the river of life described in Revelation 22 is nothing like the river, in some sense, that flows from the temple. In some ways, it's very similar, but it's just... This is just a glimpse or a shadow. I think the best way to really understand this river of life in Revelation 22 is, is to, to look at Genesis 1 and 2. When you have the river that comes out of Eden, that's more like what this river, I think, is like. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's basically uh, a reversal of, of the curse and all things are made new like they were. You know, if you look at the Bible as a whole, you got Genesis 1 and 2 where you got this present earth made and there's no sin. Then everything in the middle is this present creation with the curse and the effects of sin. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, you have a new earth with no sin. And so maybe the best glimpse that we have outside of the five verses revealed in Revelation 22 is Genesis 1 and 2. And you go read Genesis 1 and 2 and say, the new earth is going to be something like that. Because when he was done in Genesis 1, he said, it's very good. There was no sin. Everything was perfect the way that God made it. But this is not the same. Again, there is no sea. Again, the sun and the moon, we don't need them for for time markers and for light and for day. So it's distinct and different than the first created order. But it's similar in the sense that it's a sinlessness. Robert Mounts, in his little commentary, little, I mean, his commentary said, the first five verses of chapter 22 portray the eternal state as Eden restored. Again, I just think that's a good way to, in your mind, go something similar. Uh, thus, book ending the Christian Bible. The curse has been removed, and God's people are, again, privileged to see his face and to serve him. That is the same. Uh, there's no greater good or more joyous truth could be imagined than eternal fellowship with God and with the Lamb. Truly, the unimaginable blessings of Eden have been restored. That's a good way to... That, that's the similarities. There is now communion together with God like Adam and Eve had, like no other human has ever been able to perceive before. 
uh, since that time. There is now a unity together with God and man that has never been comprehended by man since sin entered into this world. That's going to be similar. The difference is, is this is a new earth with just the things that never existed in the Garden of Eden. But it is good to kind of think about it that way. In Eden, you can see a river um, that the Lord made in Eden. It says uh, there was a tree of life there. There was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided, became four rivers. It went to the different lands, and there was uh, beautiful you know, gold and onyx and Bedlam and all that there. Um, and if you go and you read, and um, as he actually when it describes Satan, who was in the Garden of Eden, it describes Eden very similar, that uh, it, with many of these jewels and, and precious stones, uh, and 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 the the presence of God there. So again, um, again, this is something someone else made, but I thought was a good sort of like put them side by side. Look at Genesis one and two, and then look at the last uh, Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Heavens, earth created. Now you got the new heavens, the new earth. Night begins there, and God makes it. It's very good in Genesis 1, but there is no night anymore. Uh, the seas were created. They were very good in Genesis 1, but now there is no sea. The sun and the moon were created in Genesis 1, and that was very good, but now there is no sun and moon. The curse came in Genesis 3. The curse has now been completely removed. There's no more effects of sin. There's no more remnants, trace of sin. The earth itself is made new so that you can't, even the, the, the layers of earth that show the judgment of God now are gone. And uh, death enters in in Revelation 3. There is no more death. It's been cast into a lake of fire. It's not even possible anymore. Sorrow and pain begin in Genesis 3. Now we have no more crying, pain, and sorrow. Man is driven away from God and away from the tree of life. And now man is restored and we, are, we, we partake of the tree of life and we're together with God forever. So that's what I mean when I say comparing them. You can look at one and look at the other and you can see similarities and differences between the two accounts. But the new heavens and the new earth are beyond our comprehension. It does talk about there being a tree of life there. A crystal clear water, just no contaminants, is perfect. And then uh, a tree of life. Uh, again, when we talk about the tree of life, all we can do is go back to the tree of life that we know from the garden and, and, and go something like that. You know, uh, I, I don't think you necessarily have to say it's the exact same tree of life. It could be, but it's just a tree uh, of life. There's a tree of life in the garden. Uh, man had to be kept away from the tree of life uh, so that, that he could not partake of the tree of life uh, after he sinned. And then in Revelation 2, 7, it says to him who overcomes, God will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So again, we are now partakers of the tree of life. And it says this tree has 12 kinds of fruit. Um, it, it, and it says uh, fruit for every month. So whether that's a different fruit every month, that would be, that would be neat. A tree that, you know, pears this month and apples this month and oranges this month. I don't know, you know. It's probably going to be better fruit than we can imagine, you know. Uh, I just got back from Florida. The fruit there is so good. <laughs> you know, we go to Costco here and we're like, that's good. You go there and you eat fresh fruit. This is so good. This will be beyond that. Um, I remember talking to my kids here at the school. And they're like, well, so if there's no death, does that mean we're not going to, there's no steak in the eternal kingdom? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but... I mean, the apples are going to be so much better than, like, Ruth Chris steak. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and it's hard to comprehend now. I mean, if you put me a, a steak and an apple, it's like steak every time. But, uh, but yeah, it's going to be good. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be unbelievable. And it says the leaves are for healing. Now, again, when, when we say healing, we think, well, then that means there's got to be pain or there's got to be suffering or there's got to be something to heal, right? But the, the word for healing here 
Um, uh, it just means to cure, to service, or to make whole. And basically, one of the ways you could kind of think about this is, is eating from the, the tree or trees of life will, will, will be for just, just for our service, for our benefit, uh, and to, 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 to make all things Perfect. It doesn't mean that there's necessarily like, oh, now I'm hurt and I need to go eat from the tree of life. It's just part of our sustenance and part of our uh, continue, uh, continued life here on earth. Um, and and uh, it's just something for our benefit. Uh, there's other parts of scripture that talk about the tree of life. And this might help you kind of just think of it in a different way. Uh, it says in Proverbs, a lot of things in Proverbs talk about, it, it talks about wisdom being a tree of life. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. Uh, desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. And so the effects of the tree of life is just the, 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 the blessings of God and the righteousness and the, the wisdom and the, the, the desire fulfilled. It's just going to be for our enjoyment and for, our, and for His glory and for us to, to, to benefit for eternity. So ris- wisdom, righteousness, fulfillment, all of those things, this might be part of, of a way to understand what the tree of life uh, is for and it says that there's no more curse. There's no more curse, uh, and the throne, of the Lamb, and the throne of God will be there. So no more sin, no more death, no more deceit, no more decay. All those things have been uh, fully uh, thrown or thrown into the lake of fire, and Christ's work has been completed. And then it says the throne of God and of Christ will be in it. Um, basically, th- this is where uh, God uh, exists. God is. In all places at all times, the Spirit is everywhere, but this is the residence of God. Again, even when you think about the temple or the tabernacle, God existed in the Holy of Holies. Fully God was in a place and at the same time existed in all places. And it will be very similar. This is the, if you want to say it, dwelling place, residence, or tabernacle of God, and we will be there. Actually, 1 Corinthians 15 is a good, this is a, a description by Paul of, of the end. I mean, the, like the, the, the culmination of all things and the end of all things. Uh, and he talks about the resurrection of Christ. He's been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, the first of, of others uh, who are asleep. Uh, for since by a man death came, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Again, it doesn't mean that this isn't universalism. It just means all those who have died in Christ will be made alive just like Christ. New bodies, eternally Together with him, it says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits after those, uh, after that, those who are Christ as coming, talking about all those who have died in him. That's what we've talked about already. And it says, and then comes the end. So this is like in a couple of short verses, everything in Revelation, you know, it's like he, he rose from the, or everything in the New Testament. Christ rose and when he comes back, we'll all rise with him. And then is the end when he hands over the kingdom to, God, uh, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. That's what's happened here. The, the, the great white throne, the eternal lake uh, of fire, all things have been done away. Christ reigns supreme as king. And then it says, and then he, it says he must reign until he's put all, all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to abolish will be death. For he's put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says... All things are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So that's talking about God the Father. Uh, When all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, God the Father, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Again, you got just Trinitarian things going on here, but the, 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 uh, the paraphrase of this is Christ will do all that Christ is meant to do. 
including judging all things, casting death into the lake of fire, and showing himself to be the supreme ruler and king for all eternity. And then he himself will subject himself to the Father and give God all things so that God is all in all. And I think that's what we're talking about here in Revelation 21 and 22. God being all in all, and we're wrapped up in God, and Christ has given all things to God, but Christ still reigns as king. There's that subjection of Christ to the Father, and at the same time, they are Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are fully God, and those are the incomprehensible things of the Trinity. We just say the Trinity because we, we don't get it, and it but we, we understand it in the way that he's described it to us. And so, anyway... That's just what uh, Paul says in Revelation, I mean, in First Corinthians 15, and I think that is describing what we're, what John is seeing here at the very end. But then this is a neat, this is a neat little uh, ending. Uh, it talks about us and 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 how we will partake of this, uh, and it talks about the roles of the servants of God that are there with him. And the first thing it says is they will serve him. They will serve him. For all eternity, we will serve Christ. For all eternity, we will serve our Father. And that service will be part of worship, part of life. It's like that quote we said earlier with MacArthur, that life is worship and worship is life. Again, we don't understand that now. Work will be worship, and it will be wonderful and edifying glory. It won't be toilsome. Work is hard now because of sin, not because of work. And, And all of those things... Uh, when we serve him, it'll be our highest privilege. We will uh, worship him in all that we do. Again, Henry Morris and his little commentary, because he's a, he's a scientist. He's a scientist that believes in the inerrancy of the word. And he just starts talking about like all the things that nerdy scientists would be like. I mean, we're going to explore the universe. We have bodies that can travel and do all the, and you know, we can travel to far ends of the galaxy and see these stars. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know what we will be doing in service for him, for all eternity, but it will be perfect, wonderful, and, and it will be a, a blessing to us forever. Uh, the other thing it says here, and I, I think this part is really neat, it says they will see his face. Now again, we can't, we, we already read that uh, from First Timothy earlier, that we, we can't see him now. If we were to see the glory of Christ or of God, it would consume us because we're sinners. We don't have bodies that are able to to stand in the presence of God, but there will be a time where he will be accessible, where we will see his face, where we will not fear to enter his presence ever again. Everyone that got a glimpse of the glory of God, you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, they fall down like dead men and they fall down before him and they know they're, they say things like, I'm an unworthy person, I shouldn't be here. I mean, even when Peter saw Christ on the boat, he said that, you know, and that was not him in his glory. When he saw him at the transfiguration, they all fell, James, Peter, and John fell down before him. And again, there's fear now when we see him, but that will no longer be. We, there will be no trace or remnant of sin will be made holy and perfect, and we will be able to see the Lord and to seek his face and be together with him. John 17 when Jesus is praying with it's, it's the God the Son praying to God the Father right before he goes to the cross, there's some things he says in there that, again, are just understandable and incomprehensible. And I think some of the things that he says there are, are, are just kind of little glimpses into this, this union that we'll have together with God at the very end. But he says in John 17, 24, praying uh, for us, for all believers to his Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also... Uh, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, 
That's what we're talking about. We will be with him where he is at for all eternity in the place that he has prepared for us. So that, here's the purpose, that he, he wants us to be there. He wants to be together with us so that we may see his, Christ's glory that you, God the Father, have given to me, to Christ. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Christ is longing for the day that we can see the glory that the Father has given to him and we can see it with eyes and a new body that he's given to us and we'll forever be together with him. And then we'll watch him hand all things back to his Father so that God is all in all and we'll be part of this eternal reward and inheritance together with him. Um, and it says, uh, after that it says that we'll be one together with him. It says his name will be on their foreheads. We've already talked about this uh, in Revelation 3. It says, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I mean, in your brain, you just think of being like a, you know, you're, you're, you're this ivory pillar stuck in a temple. And it's like, no, it's just saying that you are part of the temple and you will never leave his presence and you will always be together with him. And that's what we're talking about here. He says, um, he, says uh, he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him my name, or I'm sorry, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and my new name. In other words, we are inscribed by the name of God, the name of his new city, and the name of Christ. We belong to him. We'll never leave his presence. We're united with him. We commune with him forever. We can't get away from him, and we would never want to get away from him. We're one together with Christ. Again, in John 17, as he's praying, I think some of this stuff is describing the oneness we'll have together with him. Christ, praying to the Father, says, The glory which you have given me, so the glory that the Father has given to Christ, he says, I have given to them. Again, that's... that's unbelievable by itself, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you, Father, in me, that they may be perfected in unity. I just think what we're seeing here when he says that, uh, that his name will be written on their foreheads, it's just talking about this oneness, this unity, this, this permanent uh, 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 consummation that we have together with God for all eternity, that we belong to him, that he is with us, in us, that we're united together with him, that we can be in the presence of his glory, that we can serve him, that we can see him, that we are together with him. This is what makes heaven heaven. We've talked about that before. The city of gold, the jasper walls, the foundation stones, the pearl gates, unbelievable and just show his majestic glory. But this, this is it. We're with him. We are with Christ. We are with the Father. We're with the Spirit. We're together with God forever. This is what we long for. And this is what makes heaven, heaven. And it says the Lord God will illumine uh, them. Uh, basically, uh, there will never be darkness again. There's never going to be any more of this cold, rainy, dismal Februarys in Georgia. <laughs> it will be perfect and glorious forever. No more sleep. Life itself will be rest uh, and everything will be lit up with the glory of God. Like I said, there's no need for privacy. There's no shame. There's no secrets. There's nothing hidden. There is no darkness. All things are just crystal clear, and the glory of God radiates through it. It's just so different than anything you could comprehend right now. Right now, the way things work is it's all darkness. People are always... Uh, scheming and, and deceiving. And, and you, I mean, you read the news and the first thing you think is, is any of this true? I mean, what is actually true? And, and, and what's true is, is Christ and what he says in his word. And one day there'll be a time where there is no more deceit. You don't have to worry about motives and intentions of the heart. You don't have to wonder if what they said was what they meant or anything like that. All things will be made right. 
And it says the light of Christ and the light of God will illumine the city. Um, and, uh, and, and basically, oh, and it says and that we will reign together with him forever. Um, and I thought this was a good quote to end it on. Michael Vlock in his book on the kingdom of God ends his book this way. And I, this is a good way to commentate on the ending of Revelation. It says, this brings the kingdom program full circle. When God created man, he made him to rule and to subdue the earth in his presence. Yet man sinned and failed in the dominion mandate. But the ultimate man, Jesus, the Messiah, succeeds where Adam failed. Now God enables those who believe in him to carry out the mandate faithfully. Because of Jesus, all things have been restored. And God's image bearers are now able to reign over the creation perfectly for God's glory. And they lived happily ever after. Truly. But there will be a true Disney ending at the very end. But Disney is just gross and doesn't come close to the end of Revelation that God is, it shows us. This is what we long for. This is the ending of all things. Christ will reign and we will reign together with him. And we will be in his presence and we will see his face. There will be no more sin. So, like Mark said, like the Lord says, be patient. Stay steadfast. Get rid of any encumbrance and anything that hinders you from running the race here. Tell everyone you know about him so they will see his face and be together with him. This is the future for all the children of God. But for those who do not believe, for those who reject the Son, the future is the eternal lake of fire away from the presence of God in eternal darkness, pain, torment, and everlasting death. And that is the last thing, the last thing we would ever hope for any human being alive, especially people we know and love. So stay steady. Finish the race. We'll finish Revelation in the next couple of weeks. Uh, basically, the, the, we just have the, the final ending and, and a final warning. Uh, but that is the end of the description of heaven and of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Let me pray for us.